I am so excited about today's episode. I haven't really talked that much about science communication, but it is super important. And in one of my episodes, I talk about why I am transitioning to more of a science communication job because studying wildlife is super important, but if we don't get the information out there and if the public doesn't understand it or the government officials don't understand it, then it's not going to be implemented in a way that helps conserve species. Today, I have on a really great science communicator. Her name is Christina Lynn. If you just go into YouTube and search wildlife biologist, I guarantee her videos will pop up. She is extremely popular on YouTube. Today, I am interviewing her, asking her questions about what it's like to be a wildlife biologist and how she goes about talking about wildlife biology on YouTube. She offers a lot of great advice for those interested in careers in wildlife biology on this episode, and it's especially good to listen to both her and I, because we have different experiences. She has a permanent job after getting her bachelor's, so it's really good to hear advice from both of us to see what applies to what kind of job that you want. Okay, let's just jump right into it. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hello, Christina, and welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are a wildlife biologist and a pretty famous YouTuber. Can you I'm tell famous. us? <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> you, how, many, how many subscribers do you have? I'm almost at 20,000. Yeah. Like 19,200. Awesome. I looked. <laughs> that's amazing. And so well, let's start talking about your YouTube. So you started off by posting a lot about veganism, it seemed like at first, and kind of your life. And then you really started posting a lot about wildlife biology careers. And that seems to be what you, what you post a lot about now. Yeah, yeah. So actually, when I started my YouTube channel, I was stuck in like the winter in Calgary, Alberta, which there was like nothing to do outside. It was like bad weather. And I was like, I just need a hobby that keeps me inside. So I, I picked up like vegan cooking, which is so random because it has nothing to do with what I do now on YouTube. But I was like, I want to make like recipes. And I barely did a bit of that. But then I posted a video that was like a vlog style, like day in my life of a wildlife biologist. And that just got like so many views without me even like having to promote it. It just seemed like it was like a topic that was just a gap on YouTube. And then I realized, okay, well, people are more interested in this. There's a million other vegan YouTubers. So then I switched to doing more wildlife content, which is definitely what I do now. I kind of like am quite broad. Like some wildlife YouTubers just do like, you know, 
wildlife exploration, wildlife travel, or just do like one specific part of wildlife. But I'm really more of like a big picture environmental and with a focus on wildlife for sure. But I also like looking at like all the intersections of conservation too. So I try to cover a lot of different topics on my channel. And are those other people scientists as well? Because you are a wildlife biologist or do they just like animals and do this in their spare time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I find that actually there's not a lot of wildlife scientists on YouTube. And I was really surprised by that because if you go on like Twitter, I feel like there's just professors and like wildlife science communicators everywhere. But for some reason on YouTube, there's just way less. And there's more of like the wildlife presenter demographic, I guess, where they might not have like that formal training, like, or even be working as like a wildlife biologist or have that experience. It's more so just like people that are really interested in wildlife. So that's why it's interesting to have my channel and your channel too, like coming from people who are wildlife biologists are trained in that who can provide a different input than like someone who might not have that background. Yeah. I think people, when they think of YouTube, or at least this is definitely how I thought about it, that you have to have this like formal produced video. That's, that's what scientists seem to think. And in reality, you really just can talk to the camera and people will watch, especially if you have stuff that nobody's really talking about. And when I looked at wildlife biologists on YouTube, I noticed it was, it was really just you and like a, like a handful of other people. Can you tell us how you became a wildlife biologist? Yeah, for sure. So I kind of had, I feel like there's like two people that you run into in wildlife biology. One of them is like the people who wanted to be wildlife biologists since they were like three years old and that's in like their whole dream. And then people who got into it like a little bit later or just through different means. And I definitely was not the person who wanted to be a wildlife biologist from like an early age. It wasn't actually something I got into until about my second year of university. I was originally studying microbiology, so I was in the science realm, but I was kind of tending towards like, oh, maybe I want to be a doctor. I was always interested in like the environment and traveling and animals just from like my background growing up like in a rural area, but I just never knew that like wildlife biology was a career choice. <laughs> Surprising, even though there's the, you know, like Steve Irwin on TV you grew up with, I just kind of thought that was just a TV show and I didn't think there was actual real life wildlife biologists. But when I was hit my second year of university, I took an ecology course and my, it was like a required course you have to take for the microbiology major. So when I took my ecology course, I had this professor who was just this really charismatic guy and he would take us to like, it was, this was in San Diego, it was the Birch Aquarium in La Jolla and he would like talk about marine biology and ecology in such an interesting way that even like random people were walking through the aquarium like came over and started listening in because it was just like such engaging content and I think that kind of like got my eyes and my brain thinking okay well this is way more interesting than like my microbiology courses to me and so then I decided I wanted to kind of look into ecology so I looked at opportunities for volunteering and doing like internships before I like officially changed my major and decided to go down ecology but I also wanted to travel. So I kind of did a trip out of it. So I went to Bolivia and I actually got 
a internship at a wildlife sanctuary down there that was doing like some really good work in the Amazon rainforest area. And I spent a few months there and that time like totally made me decide that wildlife was the right field for me and seeing like that that's that hands-on like field conservation sanctuary type work was a huge shock but it also was like a good shock and I realized that's like the path I wanted to go down so that was kind of like my my origin story as a wildlife biologist and did you always like nature and animals growing up yeah I definitely always had that and it's kind of interesting like I grew up in the central coast of California in a pretty rural area in a small school and like so I didn't necessarily have like so much exposure to like ecology and environmental type of stuff but like I grew up in a rural area we had 11 acres of land where I grew up and we had like farm animals my sister and I kind of just would spend all of our day running around like catching frogs and lizards and kind of having that bit of a wild child like childhood which I think really contributed towards just being aware of the environment I was incredibly lucky to have that experience and that exposure and I think like my parents definitely cultivated that too because like my dad would take me backpacking from a super young age and camping so we were always like just living in the outdoors but it wasn't necessarily like okay now we're gonna go out and we're gonna learn about wildlife or we're gonna like take you to the zoo it was more like that informal like the earth teaching me about animals and wildlife and ecology and just getting like that exposure to the outdoors so much that actually made me interested in a really natural way instead of um, having to go through like um, maybe formal coursework or, you know, lab experience as a kid. It, it was just a very just gradual way that I lived, I guess. I love that. And I had a similar experience. I did grow up in the suburbs, but my parents would take us to like little ponds and we would, we would catch frogs. We would always release them though. And, you know, look at snakes. Even at our home, we would just go in our front yard and flip over flagstones and just see what insects were underneath. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely great. Can you talk about what a typical day is like or typical week is like as a wildlife biologist? Yeah, so in the position that I work in now, I basically work with both like the scientists, the technical experts side of that world, but also industry and providing recommendations, mitigation for like industrial projects, companies, you know, I'm thinking, I'm talking like mining, oil and gas, some of these like big players and providing recommendations to help reduce the harm to wildlife and trying to quantify potential harm to wildlife. And so I guess an example of that, some of the work that I've done in the past has been on migratory birds, because that's a huge issue where I am right now is, for example, if a company is building a pipeline that's going to be 700 kilometers long with like a 50 meter wide width of the pipeline right of way we call it that construction during nesting bird season has the potential to wipe out a huge amount of birds so some of the surveys I might do might revolve around actually going out and walking that area that's going to be have construction in the future and make sure there are no birds that are being harmed within that area. But that's not everything. It's a huge variety of type of work that I do. I also might be up 
in, I live in British Columbia, up in Northern British Columbia, working with indigenous communities to quantify potential concerns that they have about wildlife and the impact that industry, whether that's oil spills or that's pipelines, mining projects, all of those, like quantifying what are those concerns and how can we like mitigate against that harm happening or to reduce the harm in general so that it doesn't impact these communities and the environment in general. So it's a wide variety. A lot of times I'm in the field um, right now, not in the field very much at all due to COVID. We're having huge restrictions around where we can even go right now. But generally, I'd be out in the field um, collecting data from like boots on the ground level regarding areas that have the potential to be impacted by industrial activities. But also, I spend a lot of time in the office gathering a lot of preliminary research of the area that I might be working in, research about how a potential new construction or a new project might impact wildlife in a really unique way because you know every industrial activity impacts wildlife differently linear disturbances like a road might have a different impact to wildlife as a transmission line for example so pulling all the research that you know masters and phd students have done on that sort of disturbance to wildlife and then turning it into real world solutions and management of the wildlife itself. So like, how do you take something that's a research project saying, you know, this is how animals are harmed. Okay, well, what can we do about it? And how can we actually like implement that research into the real world? So I actually end up working a lot with that quote unquote real world. Like most of the time I'm actually not working with other scientists. A lot of times I'm working with like construction folks, project managers, people who are not scientists and trying to communicate environmental concepts in a way that they can understand and that, you know, keeping in mind some of the audiences that I'm working with, you know, um, a lot of people who don't always have the highest opinion of environmental scientists, also taking that information and like making it digestible and making someone care about it in like an easy way. <laughs> and so that could be extremely difficult. So it, it's a big mix of field office and then some manage, wildlife management type of work. Wow, that sounds like a really rewarding job. How, how much yeah, time do you spend in the field? Yeah, it's dependent on the project that I've worked on. There are some projects where I will be totally hands off. And especially as I move up in my career, like from the beginning, I started like almost 100% field work, except for like some writing up my findings at the end of the day, because I just love the field. and I just wanted to be in the fields. But I found that that held me back quite a bit after a certain amount of time, because I wasn't able to do that more advanced analysis of the data because I was always handing it off to someone else in the office. So I slowly started getting more and more office work in and to the point now that I'm finding myself in this conundrum where I love the field, but I also like the more advanced type of work and the more like wildlife management type of work that I'm doing now. But unfortunately that takes you out of the field most of the time, unless it's a project that requires like a bit more oversight from like more of a senior technical person so that that's kind of what I'm always kind of fighting with but generally like right now I'm spending probably 10% or less of my time in the field and it's usually made up of like a one week long trip because keeping into keeping in mind where I live in British Columbia it's 
most of our province is just totally remote. Like you need a helicopter to access these sites. So a lot of times if I do go out in the field, it'll be for like one or two or three weeks at a time to get like the full, do everything you can within that amount of time because it's so hard to get to some of these locations. So sometimes I won't be in the field for three months and then sometimes I'll be in the field for the whole month. So, but it's overall a pretty good balance. That's something that I say a lot too. When you see students doing their master's research or PhD research, they're in the field because they're learning how to collect data. You have to do everything yourself. But then once you graduate, um, especially with a PhD, you're really going to be analyzing the data and writing the papers. And it's just funny that you train for a job where you think you're going to be outdoors all the time. And if you're not careful, you can get a job where you don't spend any time outdoors. Yeah, totally. And I think that's always like a balance people are asking me about on my YouTube channel as well. And people are so scared. Well, oh no, like if I get into this job, please tell me that I can spend this certain amount of time in the field. But it's like everyone's path is different and it changes so much, especially if you were like 16, 17 years old, like worrying about, like there are people who reach out to me that are like, I want to be a wildlife biologist, but I want to start a family one day. Like, how do I balance that? And a lot of times it's coming from like pretty young people. And I just like kind of, while it's important to think about the future, your wants and your needs change over time. And I think just like taking it as it comes. And if you are enjoying the field right now, you know, maybe look for those like field assistant type of jobs or look for jobs that will be 100% the field and try it out. Like, will you like that? A lot of people will find what they like changes as they get experience with like 100% field work, 100% office work. And it's totally been the case for me because I went from wanting 100% of my time to be in the field to like, well, you know, now I have a partner and I have a cat and I am, you know, looking to buy a house. Like I want to balance, like have some more work-life balance. So I don't mind like being at home for these longer stretches and then getting a taste of the field when I want to. So it's, it's like, I think that's probably one of the biggest, not issues, but one of the things that I think all wildlife biologists have like internal struggle with is like, what's the perfect balance? I think a lot of people before they get into this career, glamorize, if that's a word, the field as well. And then once you actually get to do the field work, sometimes you're like, this is not that enjoyable. Yeah, totally. I think that happens so often. And that's why it's so important for people to get experience in the field, because you don't really know what it's like until you're in that position. And it's hard. Like I'm someone who grew up without like, you know, we didn't sit in front of the TV all day, like never going outside. Like I was outside all the time camping, backpacking. And I still like, who have been challenged in the field, like mentally and physically. That's not to like scare anyone that um, is really passionate about it, but it is an experience and you kind of love it or hate it, especially in some areas like working in Northern Canada in the winter or working in the Amazon, like where these, there's these extreme weather conditions. It's something you kind of just got to get the experience and like put your toe in first before you commit to a life in the field or get too worked up about it. Oh my gosh. I would hate working in Northern Canada. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, so I am just, I'm done with snow. I don't like snow. (laughs) 
I know I I moved out to the one part of Canada that it doesn't snow because oh. I was done with it too. <laughs> but I still have to go sometimes up up in the north, but at least usually on the coast it's okay. Do you have any like stories of either like bad field experiences or something interesting or dangerous happening? Oh, that's a good question. I'm like cycling through so many, so many different situations. <laughs> oh, give me a second. Or like a favorite field experience. Yeah, there is quite a few. Jeez. Yeah. I've, I've had like all different experiences. So I guess like the I've had dangerous field experiences and a lot of people ask me about like oh what's the closest you've gotten to being eaten by a bear or something like that you know what like I've been in grizzly country a lot like most of the places that I work are and it's never been the bears or the cougars that scare me it's like all of the interactions with aggressive people have been like by far the most like dangerous situations that I've gotten into and it's just like so many situations with angry stakeholders of a project, you know, locals who are upset or there was even like I was working in San Diego on the US uh, Mexican border doing rare plant surveys in one of my first jobs and we had to have like an armed escort with us because there was just like people kind of passing through that could potentially be a danger like to biologists and so those are the situations where it's been the scariest I think but generally like we work with I've always worked at least I'm not sure about everyone else but always at least with someone else in these more um, remote areas I would never go out into the field like and go alone in the middle of northern Canada like that's not something I feel comfortable with. And I think a lot of people also actually think that maybe that's something wildlife biologists do is just like go off alone into the wilderness. But like, there are so many safety protocols in place, like check-ins. We have bear spray up in the north and polar bear country, you get like an armed escort. Yeah, multiple people and safety procedures. And we're all first aid trained and everything like that. So that's never been too, too scary. But there's been a few close calls in there and they're all people. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I've heard the same from my friends in the field too. So have you seen a polar bear? No, no, I haven't done too much work in Canada. Like Manitoba is where you go for polar bears. <laughs> what what's the coolest animal you've seen in the field? Okay, I'll give a recent one that I saw this winter and it was okay, I see orcas like quite a bit out here, but I will never get over like how cool it is to see one in the wild, especially when there's not a bunch of whale boats around it. So when I was working up in northern BC off some of the islands we have here, I heard like I don't know if you've ever gone whale watching or anything, but you hear like the sound of their breasts, like just kind of exploding out of the water. And I thought it might've been like a porpoise and someone else was like, oh yeah, I think that was a porpoise. And we were on a boat, but it wasn't a porpoise. And there was a bunch of orcas that kind of swam right by us and they were so close to our boat and no other whale boats or anything around. Uh, it was just a total chance encounter. And that was, that was really cool just to see those guys in the wild, especially because they're, are, they're declining, at least the um, southern resident orcas and the northern residents near where I live. So it's always special to see those guys in the wild. And they're my, they're my current favorite to see. Yes, that sounds amazing. 
I actually, I had a conference in Vancouver and I'd always wanted to see orcas in the wild. So I did a whale watching trip and we were super lucky because you have to keep a certain distance from them. So we saw them and then we turned off the boat and they go under and you don't know where they're going to pop up. And several times they came up really close besides our boat. It was, it was so amazing. Because they're so used yeah, to... Yeah, their boat unfo- traffic here is like, yeah, you have to keep a certain... I think it's like 400 meters for the southern Yeah, It's such a decent amount of space. And unfortunately, it's, it, it feels weird to see them in the wild because all the pictures you see of them are like at SeaWorld. <laughs> so it's like... I know. Yeah, it's so... It's, I, I've never been to SeaWorld, but I can't imagine that it's comparable at all to no, seeing them yeah. in their true habitat. Can you tell us some struggles in the field? What's the hardest thing to deal with? Or what are some unpleasant things about the field that people wouldn't normally know? Like quite often, a lot of it can be. Um, I think just when you are working in an isolated area, it could just be really tough to spend more than a few days like living that life, I guess, in many different ways. I mean, one, just being away from your family for so long and your friends. And even if it's only a few weeks, like sometimes we don't have internet access in the field at all or very limited ability to interact with the outside world. And then sometimes, you know, you don't get along with other people that you're out in the field with. And that can be a huge struggle to spend you know, you don't, you don't get to go home at the end of the day. You, you know, are in a camp or a field station with everyone you're working with. And so there can be like arguments and drama and you can't really like escape it. So that was always tough, especially when I was working. I worked on pipelines for a few years exclusively. And so I was, I was the only biologist there, maybe one of the only ones with these work in these work camps with sometimes like a hundred men in the far north and they were I don't know none of them were like my age or they just we just didn't get along I had we had nothing in common or even worse I've had potential like harassment type of issues in the field that are really hard to deal with when you're in a remote area or in an industry that doesn't take that stuff seriously though all of those and even weather too like just facing bad weather bugs mosquitoes you know, constantly all day, that little sound of the droning mosquito in your ear while you're trying to focus is definitely like some of the downsides. And there's like, it's highs and lows because I find the highs can be so high in the field. Like you just feel so happy and amazed to be there. But then some days you're just, it's just not happening and you can't really just like take it easy like you could in an office and just, just float by. It's like, no, you're kind of all there. You're all on. You still have to trudge 15 miles through this mud pit. Um, sorry, no no days off because you're only out here for six days from the helicopter. And yeah, so it can be just really tough not being able to get a break sometimes and really just exhausting. Yeah. Getting along with people is, you're right. It's so true. Even if you really like the person when you're living with them day and night and working with them, it can get tense even, even if you start off really liking them. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've struggled so much sometimes with like coworker disputes and you know what the funny thing was like the worst situations that I was in as far as like drama and gossiping have been when I was in those like work camps of like all men. I don't know what it was, but 
those men that I worked with were the most gossiping group. I called myself like the part-time psychologist of like the work camp because it was just never ending drama and like people one-upping each other. And it was like, it's just exhausting. I just want to do my job. Yeah. I've been in similar situations. You're right. Like people always stereotype women as being gossipy, but I've definitely been around groups of gossipy men. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. On your YouTube channel, you give away a lot of advice and I know you get a lot of questions. So what would be your biggest tip for people going into this field? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I have so many, but I think the one thing that I see the most that stops people from getting a career as a wildlife biologist and keep in mind, like I, me and you have different backgrounds. Like I've not spent that much time in academia. So this might be totally different for the academic world, but from like yeah, my that's world. I'm yeah. especially interested in your point of view because I never searched for jobs after my bachelor's. I searched for, well, I searched for jobs, but I searched for temporary jobs because I wanted to go to graduate school. But you have a permanent job after um, your bachelor's. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. your advice from that perspective. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's still a lot of people who aren't going to their master's and their PhD. There's still a lot of people who are looking for jobs with their bachelor's. And it does depend on your area. But I think just in general, the biggest piece of advice I would have is like how important experience outside of academia might be, or even experience as a research assistant within academia, I suppose. But just experience outside of like the school class bubble and getting out into like in industry and trying to like see how things work from that perspective, especially if you want to get a job in industry. Maybe if you want to go down the academia route, taking those academia type of internships and research experience might be best. But a lot of people are like, no, I want to go work for like fish and wildlife, or I want to go work for these nonprofits. And those companies value experience so much more than people realize, because I think it takes people getting out of school and applying for their first jobs to realize the junior wildlife biologist position, quote unquote, or the junior scientist position is not made for someone who has no experience. It's for someone who has like one to three years of experience already. So then people get really frustrated because, well, how was I supposed to, how am I even supposed to get that job if I don't have experience? But now all the jobs that hire no experienced people are all internships or summer student positions or co-ops. And now I'm out of school and I don't qualify for those positions anymore. And then you get in this like weird conundrum where you just can't get that like first few jobs. And that can be really difficult. But I truly think like getting those internships and those co-op opportunities while you're still in school that counts as work experience. That counts as like, you know, your one to two to three years you can get while you're still in school and get that exposure because that's what a lot of people outside of the academic world value in hiring managers is like seeing that you have worked, you know, in, you know, construction or you've worked in the nonprofit world, the NGO world, you've worked in government before and you have some idea of where to start instead of just kind of coming with like no knowledge outside of your coursework. And for me, I learned so much in the working world that I didn't learn in school. So I felt like a lot of my further education was like boots on the ground, like working these like seasonal research jobs on during the summers and that kind of work. So I think getting that as soon as you can is so essential. 
And that, I mean, that could bring us into a whole nother conversation about unpaid internships and paid internships, which is another rabbit hole to go down. But like, if you can find some sort of experience, even if it's just one day a week, that's going to make you so much more set up, set up for success than if you graduate, especially, you know, people who graduate from a master's or PhD program that have never worked outside of academia applying for government or NGO or industry jobs. It's going to really put you behind a lot of other people. You're so right. Even for getting in graduate school, if you're going into a more applied field like wildlife biology or applied ecology, they want you to have experience before you go to graduate school. I think pretty much I think everyone in, in our field had experience before they went to graduate school. And really, it's only like the more like traditional biology paths, I think, that you can just graduate and then and, and not have experience and get into a degree program. But you're right. And, and even if you are in a graduate program and want to work for a government position, you, you really should get that experience working with that type of agency if you can, because it's going to be so much easier for you later on. Yeah, totally agreed. And I mean, it's not easy to get that experience sometimes, but if you're still in your degree program, a lot of times you have a better shot because I mean, a lot of the internships I find restricted to people who are still in school because that's their intention of offering that internship. And you also build those connections. Like I interned at a government agency in Southern California when I was going to school and I got offered a job upon graduation. I mean, you know, not offered, but it was like, apply to this job, Christina, like you'd be a really, really great fit. Like, you know, it would have been something where like my resume would have stood out so much more because I had experience interning there and I already knew what the job was all about and I already knew what the agency was all about. And they, I proved to them that I was, you know, an easy person to work with and I worked hard versus like they could also hire someone who they have, they're taking a risk on. So a lot of times they want, you kind of see these natural progressions from like where you might intern at to like being offered or referred for a permanent job or even just like a seasonal job uh, when you graduate. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about YouTube. What advice would you have for a scientist who's interested in starting a YouTube channel? That's a really good question. And also YouTube is so strange sometimes with who it decides to promote out to people and who it doesn't. But I found in general, like what you were kind of touching on at the beginning was people don't necessarily want to see these like overproduced videos where, you know, you might be reading from a script and, you know, you're not really showing your personality very much. Like people don't necessarily go on YouTube for that. They go on YouTube to find people that are like them and that they can relate to and people who, you know, might make them laugh or might, you know, make them feel like comforted in the position that they're in right now. And I think like showing that side might not be natural for a lot of scientists who might not have as much of that science communication background and maybe like their only kind of talking experience was at conferences, which is a totally different world than like the world of YouTube and social media and science communication. So I definitely say like, kind of be yourself. And if you want to start your own personal channel, don't be afraid to talk about your personal life, because there's a lot of people who 
think that all scientists have had some like super easy path to where they are now because no one really talks about the hard parts and the parts that, that weren't so easy. And so I think by talking about that, it creates a better, creates, it, it helps inform people that what they're going through as a scientist you know, whether that's with their research, their personal life, their academic struggles, like they're not alone. And a lot of us have also faced a lot of those things. And so I think that could be really important. And the other thing I would say too, for starting on social media is just to try not to get wrapped up with like the numbers and the algorithm and like being upset because only this many people viewed this video and way more people viewed this video. A lot of times it's totally random (laughs) what videos get promoted and which ones don't. So I think as long as you're enjoying yourself and you're, you know, maybe connecting with at least a few people, uh, then that's kind of the most important thing because it's not about not about like trying to get the most money or the most reputation it's about like because because in youtube in the youtube world you can't guarantee any of that it's just about enjoying yourself and like connecting with people who are like you that is so true i used to worry about my followers with instagram particularly Mm -hmm. and then i'm just like i'm gonna give this up this is just stupid and now i don't care anymore And my YouTube, I actually don't get a ton of views. I have a pretty good number of followers for just starting, but I don't have a ton of views on my videos, but I get some really good comments and I feel like, okay, people are watching and this is helping them. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's another weird thing is there's some channels that have so many like subscribers, you know, and then not, no one really views or engages with their videos very much. And so it's really like not indicative of like how much um, effort or how much value you provide. It's most of the time, it's just a matter of being picked up by the algorithm. Like if you just keep putting videos out there, like one day the YouTube algorithm is going to really like one of them and start promoting it out. And then you'll get like a hundred thousand views on one of them. As long as you're like putting out like authentic and interesting content, it's kind of just a matter of time. And I think with your channel too, like I think it's like your videos are very well produced and are totally valuable and like relevant. So I think it's just a matter of time till the YouTube algorithm realizes that, oh wait, let's push those out to everyone. Thank you. It's just with my camera. That's it. (laughs) What are your favorite kind of videos to make? I love actually... I'm, I'm getting a little sick of like the like just cr- my career <laughs> series videos, which is funny because those are the ones that totally get the most views and the most people ask for those. But it's just so fun to like do like something a little bit different. I've actually been having a lot of fun with a series I've been kind of working on, which is like my like reacting to controversial opinions. I really like talking about those issues that wildlife biologists are divided on, like where we have so much we have so much disagreements within our own community. You know, I'm talking about like whaling and hunting and trophy hunting and, you know, conservation and zoos. And those are things that like no one seems to agree on, even as wildlife biologists. So I really like kind of delving into those sorts of topics where you could just go on and on debating um, one way or another and then seeing what people in my comment section think and I, I really enjoy doing those or just getting really into a topic that has never really been covered on YouTube. I found that with some of the videos that I do, I did one recently about the history of ecology and colonial science, and I had never really seen any other video on YouTube that did something similar. So it's pretty neat, even though it doesn't have like the keywords to get it 
to the masses, it's neat to make a video that like you haven't seen anyone else do. So you're kind of the first one to introduce certain concepts to people. So I, I enjoy that part of it. Yeah. And that's a really important topic too. If you could do your YouTube channel full time, would you do that? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, I would say probably not because I think that would suck the fun I get out of it. I would, I would, oh man, that's such a good question. Yeah. I love my job and being out in the field and having like doing working in real world conservation type of scenarios. So if there was a way I could incorporate that in with my YouTube channel, I had this idea of like, well, what if I did my YouTube channel and I got all these, you know, viewers and it could like support me like traveling around the world and like highlighting different like conservation projects around the world. Like if I had the opportunity to do something like that, I would love to do that. That would be such a dream job. But then I get so worried about that now the the followers and the views matter, right? Because that's how I put my bread on the table. And I really enjoy just the fun aspect of it. So I don't know, who knows where the future, the future might go with it. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. I had a great time talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Christina, once again for the interview. I had such a great time talking to you. If you want to check out Christina's YouTube channel, just search her name, Christina with a K and Lynn. It's also in the show notes. You can find her on Instagram at wildbiologist and on Twitter at the wildbio. And like how Christina and I were saying, if you are at all interested in starting YouTube, you should just go for it. Don't overthink it. Just start recording some videos and putting them up there because there are so few scientists on YouTube compared to other social media. As Christina mentioned, Twitter is full of scientists and YouTube is really an untapped social media resource. And more people use YouTube than they do Twitter. Even if you don't use YouTube, when you Google something, YouTube videos often come up in the search results. Just thinking about becoming one, just make some fun videos about animals or your thoughts and perspectives on things and you could really help people out. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Please subscribe if you like this podcast, share it with a friend. If you could rate it, that really helps me out so other people can find it. That's one of the best ways that you can pay me back. Thank you. Have an amazing day. Be kind to animals. Be kind to each other. Bye.